Good morning, everybody. Welcome to our second day of our Cato 40 celebration. Um, as most of you know by now, my name is David Bowes. I'm the executive vice president of the Cato Institute. Um, with me today, we're going to be discussing the intellectual climate for liberty. Uh, with me are Charles Murray, one of the most influential social scientists in America since he published Losing Ground in 1984, just back from a triumphal tour of Middlebury and Notre Dame. <laughs> And Jacob Levy of McGill University, author of the highly acclaimed book, Rationalism, Pluralism, and Freedom, fresh off his birthday on Star Wars Day. <laughs> and Emily Eakins, my colleague here, Cato's political scientist and pollster, fresh off the UCLA PhD program. So let's get right to it. Charles Murray, what is the intellectual climate for liberty today? <laughs> okay. <clears throat> Before I get to the depressing part of the answer, let's, let's look at uh, a little history. And a lot of you in the room, as I look around, are old enough to remember it. <clears throat> 1950, <clears throat> our point of view was dead, uh, effectively dead. It, uh, it res res resurrected the 19, well, we had Road to Serfdom, and we had Milton Friedman beginning to work, but essentially the ideas of classical liberalism and, and libertarianism were, were moribund. Saw a lot of progress during the 1950s with uh, Bill Buckley on the one hand and Ayn Rand on the other. And there was the Goldwater nomination, which showed how much progress had been made. But I guess the heyday was the 1970s. And actually, Cato's a good marker there because 1974 was about the time that, that we were the cool kids in the block. Uh, Milton Friedman had a weekly column in Newsweek and... Uh, and things were just bustling. The most important, interesting work was coming out of the right. And uh, then it's been kind of downhill in, in a very gradual sense since then, I think. There was, um, I was very heartened by the, by the Tea Party. But if you think where we were in 1994, after the 1994 House election, where I was saying to myself, all we need are one or two more elections and we can have major change in this country. And then what's happened since then, and then what happened last summer and fall when we discovered that a great many people who have voted Republican not only are not libertarians, they really aren't all that crazy about non-authoritarian government in general. And so, David, the short answer is that we were rock stars in the 1970s, and we are conservatives now, and we have a relatively thin presence on the ground in terms of the intellectual excitement that's going on. That's short term. And a lot of this hour is going to be spent talking about the contrast between short term and long term. But today, not good. Jacob, what's your perspective? Uh, I certainly share that final conclusion. Um, relative to any time since 1989, which is important historically, but also happens to be the first time that we met. I visited Cato in the old brownstone when I was 18 in Washington that year. Um, but 1989 was a moment when classical liberal ideas, broadly speaking, uh, were, were rapidly coming to be understood as being the most important ideas about politics and society in the intellectual world 
writ large, by which I don't only mean the intellectual world about American politics. Uh, there has been a lot that has gone badly since then, both in terms of the intellectual part of the libertarian movement and the climate of ideas more generally. Certainly since the financial crisis and certainly, certainly since the rise of populist national authoritarianism in moderately to advanced consolidated democracies over the last five years, it's become clear just how fragile support for the basic institutions of the liberal society are. Uh, to say nothing of the particular variant of those that are libertarianism. I think that there have been important moments in the last 25 years when some people who thought of themselves as basically libertarian or classical liberal adopted such a smash the system attitude, such a conviction that what we were was something fundamentally outside the norms of ordinary liberal democratic life as to uh, create a desire for cheerleading of anti-institutionalist cheerleading for anything that seemed like it would bring about radical disruption. I think, I suspect, that the last several years have made clear that that can't be right and that we have important relearning to do about what classical liberalism means in the context of politically complicated liberal democratic constitutional market orders and the ways in which our vision of a free society depends on the structures of a free society, on constitutional democracy, on the rule of law, <coughs> um, and in ways that I think will tend over the next 40 years to diminish the appeal that a long-term fusion and alliance with the right has had for classical liberalism over so much of the period of time that Charles was talking about. Some of the greatest threats to the free society arise out of the ethno-nationalism of the right and out of the use of state power in the United States and elsewhere against ethnic and racial minorities. Uh, racism is a cause of statism and in an important way always has been a contributing factor to the growth of unfreedom and the use of state power to create unfreedom in American society. One of the worst things that's happened in American society since 1989 is the explosive rise in mass incarceration that has accompanied an increasing violence of the drug war. Now, a populist authoritarian government is in a position to inherit a much more powerful state with respect to the ability to imprison, the ability to arrest, the ability to beat and kill people in the streets. Uh, and that puts the stability of the rule of law and the basic sense of free society somewhat more at risk now in the hands of a government that we dislike than it would have been in the time before mass incarceration, before the rise of the carceral and policing states. Emily, your thoughts? Well, so I come from the public opinion angle. I'm thinking about um, public policy issues in a, a series of buckets. So if we were to bucket issues the first into kind of social and civil liberties, 
what we see there is we actually see a lot of progress. We see a lot of optimism in those areas. Americans are becoming far more tolerant and liberalized um, in their attitudes towards um, LGBT people, towards racial minorities, religious minorities. Um, we're seeing increasing liberalization in attitudes towards drugs. Um, and a realization that perhaps we went a little too far with criminal justice reform in the 80s and 90s, too far in the direction of mass incarceration, over-incarceration, and we're seeing bipartisan, cross-partisan, post-partisan support um, up until this election, that is, um, in the general public for rethinking um, how we treat um, those in our criminal justice system. And we, we're also seeing some budding support for policing reform, although that's kind of halted <laughs> since this election. So in those areas, we're seeing a lot of positive trends. And I think it's important to not just think about the trends that we're seeing in just a two-year period. It's important to think about trends over a 5, 10, 15, 20-year period. And when you do that, you do see some positive trends in those areas. One area where we're not seeing a, a good trend <laughs> um, when it comes to, um, it, it is when it comes to freedom of speech and expression on college campuses, as Charles Murray can attest, um, we're seeing that young people don't seem to have a in-depth understanding of how the process of liberal science, um, which is part of free speech, how that works. So we're seeing that young people, almost um, one of the most recent Pew surveys found that 40% of young people felt that it was acceptable for the federal government to prohibit people from saying things that were offensive to minorities. Now, we all agree that it is rude to say those things, and it would be wise to not. But it's another to say that the federal government should use coercive force to prevent that kind of speech. Um, Compared to older Americans, it was maybe only 25% thought that the government should have that power. So we are seeing among younger people, despite increasing levels of tolerance in many good ways when it comes to speech, we are seeing a problem there. On economics, though, we're seeing a different story. We're actually seeing some, uh, some negative trends. If you look at healthcare, we're seeing increasing numbers of people saying that the federal government should have responsibility we're providing for people's health care. We're seeing increasing support for a, quote, bigger government providing more services um, and increased support for various um, for, for federal spending in various er areas, particularly in the area of infrastructure and veterans benefits. Part of the reason I think we're seeing this is that um, a lot of these polls are looking back to 2010, 11, 12, and then comparing that to now. 2010, 11, 12, the Tea Party movement was in full force, and the national dialogue was focused on debt, deficits, government spending. Um, and we were actually talking about no more tax increases, just spending cuts. Um, that is not what we're talking about right now. And I think part of the reason for that is that when Republicans won the Senate in 2014, that's when you actually start to see some of this shift begin. And in 2017, when Republicans took control of Congress and the executive branches, a lot of those activists who were involved in these fiscally conservative groups, many of which are Republican, stopped being as active, stopped pushing back against what government is doing. We haven't seen a dramatic cutback in the growth of government or spending. 
but yet they're not as involved and they're not influencing the conversation. In fact, we're seeing the exact opposite where President Trump is talking in such a way that he doesn't really prioritize cutting spending in those ways. He's not interested, at least at this time that I'm aware of, of reforming entitlements, which is something that we really have to do. So I think that's part of what's happening is that as Republicans took control, those activist groups kind of melted away and they're not shaping the debate in that direction anymore. Where we are seeing some positive progress, though, is on the issue of regulation. More and more Americans are concerned that the government is regulating too much and stifling economic growth. And I think this is something where we can really make progress. We're kind of seeing a bifurcation between attitudes towards the social welfare state, like big government spending and regulation. Ideally, we'd like people <laughs> to understand that both of those can be problematic. But at least right now, I think we should be focusing our efforts a lot on this issue of regulation, regressive regulation. How are we slowing economic growth in ways that are hard to see? Because um, it's kind of behind closed doors. A lot of people aren't really familiar or aware of all the rules that are on the books that are preventing businesses from growing and from innovating. If you think about um, Uber, the new um, ride-sharing taxi service, I mean, they were technically illegal for years, and they really had to break the law in order to come about. Um, and they've brought about a lot of positive growth by doing what they've done. And now other companies can follow suit. What other regulations do we have on the books that are preventing companies like that from coming to fruition? So these are the areas where I see positive and negative trends. I think that with the election of Donald Trump and the narrative that surrounded it, we were definitely talking about issues that were not libertarian, or we were talking about them in a way that was kind of the opposite of the direction we'd like to be going. I think that we should caution ourselves to not overinterpret one election. Uh, when President Bush won in 2004, Democrats thought that there was a permanent red majority in America forever. And when Obama won, people thought it was a permanent Democratic majority forever. Demo um, demography was destiny. Um, and now that Trump has won, people feel like it's going that direction. So I think it's really about who is activated, who's actually showing up on election day, what activist groups are actually making a difference and um, getting their voices heard. And typically, it's minorities of voters. What I mean by minorities is small numbers of voters who don't necessarily represent everyone else that take the driver's seat and control the narrative. And right now, what you were talking about, kind of the ethno-nationalism, um, some very disturbing authoritarian trends in the, in the national narrative, don't necessarily represent the views of very many people, but they're the loudest. So hopefully, um, that trend will shift over the next few years. And it's very possible we could go in a much more positive direction. Charles, it seems to me that in conversations like this over the past 30 years, until two years ago, um, intellectual climate for liberty in front of a libertarian audience, the whole focus would be on the left and the taxing, spending, entitlements mentality. And now, you and Jacob both sort of pointed to right-wing authoritarian populism as a big challenge, which maybe we didn't see coming. Uh, I don't know about you, but uh, my track record on American politics uh, until the election night was 100% wrong all the time on everything, which makes me wonder why you should pay any attention to anything I say right now. Um, look, the... the uh, the people who are now occupying the, well, isn't this 
I don't want to use the word sexy because a lot of people talk about it and they are horrified by it, but I'm talking about the intellectual alt-right. So Andrew Sullivan had a piece that I highly commend to you. It was in New York Magazine, came out last week. It's a long-form piece. Well, Andrew Sullivan actually went out and talked to Charles Kessler out at Claremont. And is it Michael Anton? Is that the right name? The, the guy who formerly was... Um, what was his nom de plume? His Decius Publius? Decius, yes, like Decius that. during the campaign. These are the guys of the intellectuals of the alt-right, and Andrew takes them seriously. And he, he, he talks about the ways in which there is a nuanced argument that's being made, and the problem is that the energy that seems to be going into that intellectually, and also the attention that's getting it's getting, pretty much eclipses anything that I have heard in defense of classical liberalism or read for a long time. And what, when, what, what was the last book that got a lot of attention that espoused classical liberal views? And I don't come up with a name uh, for, a, for a long time. I mean, we've all been laboring in the vineyards, but I don't remember us uh, uh, being very successful in getting attention. And in a funny kind of way... Well, it's not funny at all. I see some people who are on the intellectual side of the political dialogue who find the new alt-right way of looking at it interesting and new. And there is a willingness to not have in the front of your mind, but this is really dangerous and this could really lead us down an authoritarian path and this has nothing to do with the ideals of Friedrich Hayek and Milton Friedman and Adam Smith and John Locke or anybody else. This is going back toward an old way of, the, of how the world should work and it's very scary. A lot of that principled revulsion to some very elegant intellectual thinking on the alt-right I don't know how I started that sentence, but anyway, it's, uh, it, it bothers me a lot. But has there been a book from the alt-right that has gotten a lot of attention? I mean, there's a political candidate who is not actually intellectual enough to be called alt-right, but who attracted some people from that. But when you say, I can't think of a classical liberal book that's gotten a lot of attention recently, I bet if I put my mind to it, I can come up with something. But has there been an alt-right book? No. You haven't gotten the memo, have you? Nobody reads books anymore. <laughs> and and so, what I, so what I really should have said, David, is try to think of the last article in the Claremont Review or in uh, one of the, the magazines, one of which everybody was talking about because it was so cool. I tried to write something like that in a book called By the People where I was advocating civil disobedience with regard to uh, regulation and... Uh, and I thought it was, you'll be surprised to know, a really good book about trying to say, here's what we can do given the political reality of the time. You know, didn't, didn't, uh, didn't have a dent in anything. Charles Murray's book, In Pursuit of Happiness and Good Government, is also a very good book about classical liberalism, which unfortunately did not get that much attention. So it still should, but... Uh, but when you talk about what have people been talking about, and you're right, to some extent, it's just newness. Um, 
the things we're saying are not exactly new. We've been saying them for a generation. This alt-right stuff, at least, is new. Um, are we discovering, Jacob, that dead ideas we thought were dead, like socialism, protectionism, nationalism in an extreme form, even fascism, are coming back to life? We're discovering that history doesn't have as straight an upward arrow as sometimes people thought that it did. Uh, and we're seeing some intellectual political trends that I think are more reminiscent of the 30s than they are of things uh, in the post-war world when there was a very strong unified elite consensus around some basic degree of an integrated liberal democratic market world order. Uh, but protectionism, racism, nationalism, these things hadn't gone away. Uh, 1992, there were people who thought of themselves as libertarians who were drawn to the presidential campaign of Pat Buchanan, and then after that, the presidential campaign of Ross Perot, who was drawing on a number of the same, both of them drawing on a number of the same important veins. Some of it went into remission over the course of particularly the long economic boom of the rest of the 1990s. And there is at least some degree to which uh, those ideas that seek to radically undermine the liberal institutions for the sake of ethnocultural or nationalist or authoritarian sentiment, uh, they spike around certain kinds of economic crises. So it went into remission to some degree over the course of the 1990s, and over the course of the 90s, the bipartisan consensus on trade and, in particular, immigration to a lesser degree, uh, allowed for a real sense that the intellectual climate up at the heights of politics was oriented toward openness and openness to the world. It's not to say that there weren't things to fight about in the 1990s, but they were within the confines of arguments between liberal democratic market-oriented parties, liberal democratic market-oriented intellectuals in the post-Cold War world. It's the case that the ideas didn't go away just because they weren't represented at the elite level and that there were levels of popular sentiment that were there to be tapped. There were politicians all along who were cynically and strategically tapping them, not putting the ideas and sentiments of voters like those into practice, but being willing to channel them on the campaign trail for the sake of subsequent election. And this was true of both parties. There was a willingness on the part of Republicans to stoke racial resentments and anti-immigrant resentments that they would then not put into practice in politics. And there was a willingness on the part of Democrats to use rhetoric that was much more economically populist and socialist than they had any intention of putting into practice. Then along come candidates like Sanders and Trump who say, no, no, I'll mean it. And voters noticed the difference and responded to the difference. Um, that means that there were some victories that we had not won as deeply as we thought that we had. And maybe one problem is that it's been long enough since 1989 that we now have a generation that doesn't understand what socialism means. And so socialism serious problem. in UK and the US can be talked about again. 
I mean, how anybody can look at Venezuela and still think that socialism is a good idea, or let alone Cuba, let alone North Korea, but, but, but Venezuela is so conspicuously, you take this really rich country and you just destroy it. And that doesn't seem to make an impact on anybody. And Bernie Sanders, six years ago, pointed to Venezuela as an example of a more equal society. Yep. So it's not a complete <laughs> outlier that, that we have to write off. You know, maybe Albania, nobody was for Albania, but Bernie Sanders was for Venezuela. But people crave the ability in politics to feel that decisions are being made and that things are being brought under deliberate control. This is one of the great intellectual barriers to liberalism always. Uh, liberalism demands that we have people who hold office who acknowledge that they don't control the world. There's a very deep appetite um, that I think is just constitutively hard for us to overcome. Hayek in The Fatal Conceit talked about how, how psychologically difficult it is for us to rewire our brains in the face of what we need for the great society, the extended order, the impersonal rules for all of that apparatus that, the, that our modern liberal order demands. Our brains remain what they were. And when either someone says, I will make us all rich and equal by ordering it, or I will make our nation triumphant by being the tribune of the will of the people, and I will announce what the decisions are, uh, when institutions are very weak, they crumble under pressure like that into Venezuela or Hungary. When, they're, when they start off less weak, then the crumbling can take a little longer. But as we're seeing in Turkey, it can happen after an extended enough period of time. Those, those sentiments I think we have to treat as part of the raw material of politics. We have to understand that it's always going to be with us, even when for a decade, one of the traditional words for that <coughs> impulse, like socialism, goes out of fashion. So can I push back a little bit? Um, I think we might be missing, misunderstanding what people mean by socialism and what they were concerned about when it, with regards to immigration concerns during this election. So on the socialism front, <coughs> it's very concerning when Bernie Sanders is holding up Venezuela as a model. But most of his supporters, if you polled them, they would not say, we should be more like Venezuela. They would say, we should be more like Sweden. Yeah. And the reason why is they don't know what socialism means, because Sweden is not socialist. The, pres uh, the prime minister, I believe, even said, <coughs> Bernie Sanders, would you please stop calling us socialists? Yes. We're not socialists. Because um, they do have large social welfare states, so they are socialistic. And that brings with it a common set of problems that any sort of centralized planning always brings with it. Rationing, um, long lines, lower quality care, and that's exactly what they have in their healthcare systems. But in other areas, when it comes to regulation and trade, they actually have freer economies than the United States. And that's recent. That's a recent development. Um, their economic growth, um, was slowing came to a halt. I think it was in the mid early 90s. And they realized they had to liberalize something. They couldn't take away the social welfare state, so they liberalized in other areas. They privatized, um, nationalized industries. And even in their healthcare system, they did have to inject more free market mechanisms, and that's been to their benefit. So one can argue very, very compellingly that Sweden is wealthy not because of its welfare state, but in spite of it. But because of that, young people today notice that Sweden doesn't have labor camps. There's no gulags. 
people have, um, they have the freedom to believe their consciences, generally speaking, <laughs> um, but that they have large social welfare states and they see the government as an entity that should care for their needs. Um, they're very, a certain set of needs rather than providing those things for themselves. So like I said earlier, we're seeing this bifurcation between attitudes towards the social welfare state and regulation. I think the argument for our gen this generation right now is we need to not talk about the Soviet Union anymore. Everyone agrees that was a disaster. What we need to argue is are these, I would call it a beta test, what we're seeing in Scandinavia, is that sustainable? Does that work? We don't have an answer yet. Right now, people are ready to go all in. But I think we should say, let's be cautious about this. This is a new way of doing things. Um, and it's not clear it's going to be sustainable. So I think on socialism, that's how I'd Yeah, I want to pick up on Emily's uh, point here about people don't know what socialism is. And I think the same thing can be said about the free speech aspects. The, the, the degree of ignorance, just plain ignorance about uh, American institutions and the Constitution and the, our history and the rest of it in today's college students is phenomenal. And part of the reason for that is that a great many of the stereotypes about crazy left professors teaching really silly uh, courses is correct. And it is just the case that college graduates are very unlikely to have ever had a rigorous course either in high school or in college on American history, and especially American constitutional history. But So there are all sorts of things that when we talk about free speech and, and you get people, uh, I'm thinking of college students specifically, but I think it's fairly widely spread, there is no sense whatsoever of what free speech means. Uh, in the same way, there's no sense of what socialism means. David Brooks said the other day, if you stop teaching Western Civ a generation later, Western values are going to lose support. Is that what happened? I, I want to resist the thought that even something happened in quite that sense. Uh, Emily talked about public opinion data with respect to young people and free speech. If it's the same polling data that I saw, though, uh, being in college, being a university student, is positively associated with support for free speech. Where we're seeing sharpest declines for support for free speech are in non-college, non-university enrolled 18 to 25 year olds. Universities have problems. I'm never going to deny that that's the case. But the core of university life and university curricula in the liberal arts just isn't what you see in the headlines when people go looking for the most outrageous three course titles. Um, it's not what you see in headlines, even in the face of some genuinely bad action when some protesters uh, take genuinely bad action against visiting speakers. We treat those things as newsworthy, partly because they are so astonishingly rare. American universities, they host more speakers of more perspectives than any other institution in American life. It's not the habit of churches or condominium associations or, honestly, of most think tanks or activist organizations to deliberately, consciously invite 
dozens or hundreds of speakers a year there for the purpose of exposing their audiences to rival points of view. And that's just the visiting speakers, of whom there are tens of thousands per year across American university life. That's to say nothing of what the students do themselves in their organization into club life, in the debates that they sponsor, and to say nothing of how actually rich and complicated a multidisciplinary liberal <coughs> arts curriculum is at the level of coursework. I really want to stand up for uh, the value of what university life continues to offer and how much more intellectually diverse, how much more open debate there is there, even if not as much as we would like, how much more there is than in more or less any other institutional site that we can think of. Well, I want to partly agree and partly disagree. Uh, people, and, and by the way, I'm not on a university campus and you are, albeit a Canadian one, right? But I've, uh, okay. I'm American, but, I've but, spent no, time no, in America. But you, you are on a campus and I'm yes. not, so I, I grant you that. And I will also say that uh, friends of mine will talk about uh, students that they have in elite schools who are really terrific and, and, and corroborate a lot of what you say. On the other hand, uh, it is correct. Well, let's take social psychology as an example of a major domain in which lots of college students like to take courses. Uh, psychology is always one of the most popular ones. And the work of Jonathan Haidt, which led him uh, to, to uh, start attempts to get more heterodoxy into the universities. And the reason is that he discovered in his own field of social psychology that the proportion of people who were liberal in his field was about 97%. And so you have now, uh, I, I would characterize this as not scare stories. I would characterize what I'm about to say as empirically defensible. <laughs> that on a variety of topics, you have an orthodoxy, which, which you do not violate on American campuses in the soft sciences and the humanities. And the, even if you yourself don't agree with it, you don't, you don't publicly come out against it. Gender is a social construct which, which, which spreads out into all kinds of topics. Uh, race is a social construct, and class is decisively causal. The first two meaning that, um, well, that you have a whole variety of ways in which the system has been oppressive because we have these imaginary differences between men and women. We have imaginary differences among ethnicities. And everybody is equal if only we had the right socioeconomic system. That if we had the right socioeconomic system, all groups of people, whether they're divided by sex or ethnicity or sexual preference or you name it, would have uh, similar distributions of income, similar distributions of interests in X, Y, or Z. To what extent does this permeate the college curriculum? I would say a lot because there are a whole variety of issues. Suppose you are teaching a course on American history. Suppose you are teaching a course in economics. There are a whole variety of things that you self-censor yourself on. It, because if you, if you step outside that orthodoxy, and here I also have testimony from a lot of people on college campuses who are teaching there, uh, the amount of stigma that you face from your fellow faculty members and also the danger of 
of reactions from students is just too great. And we have the kinds of protests we've seen, forget about Middlebury, go back to Yale last year, uh, you know, the Halloween mask thing. It's not that most of the students buy into this. It is that the intellectual, there is a kind of intellectual oppression on campuses whereby everybody walks around on eggshells, students and professors alike. And it has led to a situation where I would argue that a great deal of the literature coming out in the social sciences anyway is just corrupt because it is so unwilling to uh, deal straightforward with lots of issues. And there's empirical data that, that backs that, that claim that you just made up where um, an academic study was conducted where they took, um, they simulated an academic paper and they um, had two different kinds. One that had a conclusion that had a more, had a perspective that was more in line with, with kind of the orthodoxy on campus and the other that had a different conclusion that was out of line with the orthodoxy on campus. But the methods, everything else was the same and they randomly sent it out to peer review and they found that those that had conclusions that were out of line with orthodoxy were rated as lower quality than those that were um, in line with orthodoxy, which is completely compatible and consistent with what we would expect. Research shows that we tend to think that people who agree with us politically, that their arguments are, are, are superior, are more compelling and persuasive. And we don't even know it. And I've noticed this happening a lot. I, um, but I think that that's a real problem on, on um, university <clears throat> campuses because the process of liberal science breaks down if there are certain conclusions that you're not even allowed to reach, and then that affects um, our next generation of young people. Um, so I think that the consequences could be deleterious. I think the study you're talking about is really very different in what it tells us from the stories that Charles was suggesting. That shows unconscious bias, and absolutely do I believe that there is unconscious and implicit bias, such that at some margin, a paper that ought to be rated as at good or better is rated as less good. Um, we know how things like that work in all kinds of domains. If you put a conspicuously black sounding name on a resume and send it out, then the qualifications will be rated as lower, even if uh, it's otherwise an identical resume. That doesn't mean that no black people get hired. And the kind of study you're talking about doesn't mean that there's an atmosphere of terror and censorship and unwillingness to dissent. In the fields where Nobody professionally studies society. So the literary humanities, I think, stand out here. In the literary humanities, I do believe that there's a pretty substantial orthodoxy that keep people carry around in their heads about race, class, gender, about that array of things. Social scientists, we have to have things to argue about. If we didn't, we wouldn't have anything to teach, we wouldn't have anything to publish. We are in the business of finding things to disagree with each other about. Um, none of which is to say that life as a classical liberal academic has been just as easy as it would have been if my politics were something different from what they are. But I have been in political science and social science settings in history settings, even at very liberal universities like Brown, where I was an undergraduate and got taught the wonders of the American Revolution and founding by Gordon Wood, um, <laughs> where the whole point of the enterprise is to find debate. We, might, we want to move 
the boundaries of the debate. That's part of our intellectual mission. That's part of how you shift debate. But precisely because we think there's something there to do, we are starting from the thought that there are debates there being had that can be moved around. The characterization of campus life as if it is all, well, the inside of an English lit classroom, uh, that's going to lead people to give up on universities and to give up on the task of moving the goalposts, moving the boundaries of debate. If you don't really believe there's debate going on there, then people who are interested in changing ideas might withdraw from university life, and that would be a grave loss. I, I, I want to deal more directly, though, with David Brooks's statement, because I think David had a very, the, the statement that if you stop teaching Western Civ, after a generation, people, no longer, the, the, the things start to crumble. <clears throat> and I think there's a lot of truth to that, that I, I had a personal experience with this in a book I wrote quite a while ago called Human Accomplishment. And one of the main themes of Human Accomplishment is a very empirically driven book, but it was simply was talking about the really extraordinary thing that happened from about 1500 uh, to 1900 in this one little tiny northwestern part of the Eurasian landmass, uh, which is just this explosion of art, literature, philosophy, uh, and of course, above all, science and technology. And uh, the reaction to that is, is, I found very interesting, which is that the immediate instinctive reaction of all sorts of students when I talk about this thing is, oh yes, but we enslave people, we colonize people. There is this real resistance to acknowledging that Western civilization was, in purely objective terms, an incredible outlier event in human history. And so first, it's, I, I find very little, let, let me rephrase that question. What I find among college students and among uh, people in general, is, intellectuals in general, is embarrassment about the West. And, and, and a readiness to, to, uh, to give a mea culpa, mea culpa, whenever any of the, the appropriate allegations of things the West did wrong are raised, but also an enormous ignorance of it. So that people, when they who talk about a philosophic tradition of the West, you're going to get met, and here, again, I'll go to the mat with you on, on the distribution on college students, They'll just be blank stares if you ask them to talk about the philosophic traditions of the West, because hardly any of them have taken courses on it. And similar, similar it goes for literary traditions and the rest of it. You take a thousand college students and give them really simple tests about basic elements of Western civilization, and you get appalling sets of answers. And here we do have, we do have numbers which Sadly, I don't have it at the tip of my tongue. I think that, here's, here's my main takeaway from, from all of this. I think the founders were deeply right about the fragility of democracy. Deeply, deeply right about the, the democracy is, is commit suicide given the slightest opportunity. And I think the failure to t not only teach Western civilization, but to say, you know, there was some really cool stuff that the West did, it, that nobody else in the world did, 
uh, unless we're willing to do that, I think we are undermining the, the props that keep advanced democracies going. In the grand old days of the early 20th century when Oxford and Cambridge and the elite British universities of the system were deeply committed to teaching a Whig view of history in which British liberty is the ultimate culmination of human history and where the curricula were still substantially immune to uh, modern research disciplines at all. They were oriented around the greats. If ever there have been Western Civ curricula, it was Oxford, Cambridge at the beginning of the 20th century. And two generations of alumni of those programs um, over the course of the 1920s, 30s, 40s in the elite of British society, they lost their faith in liberalism in markets, in democracy. They split between those who were basically attracted to socialist planning and those who were basically attracted to fascism and nationalism. That they had a curriculum of the greats, as the Western Civic Curriculum was then called, didn't somehow immunize them from not understanding the value of liberalism and constitutionalism and all the rest. There's just not that neat a line you can draw. In the post-war American world where, uh, according to the Brooks quote, we would think, well, there was Western Civ taught in American campuses up until a generation ago. Okay, and what were those universities like? Those were universities where Friedrich Hayek couldn't get a tenure-track appointment in a university department, in, in a university economics department in North America. There was closure. There was the whole era that we standardly tell in our classical liberal historiography when there was no receptiveness to liberal ideas over the course of the 1950s, 60s, 70s, substantially in university life. How can that be if they were teaching Western Civ up until a generation ago? Well, it's because there's just not that neat a line to draw between the content of the curriculum and whether people have the robust ability to stand up for and defend the institutions of the liberal order. I actually think that it goes way beyond the college curriculum. That what we did have in the United States was a very thorough socialization of kids to the American way of life and the American system in K-12, uh, which, by the way, was pretty much diminished even by the time I was in elementary school, and we were talking a long time ago here. I'm talking about the days of McGuffey's readers, actually. And so that if you talked, and this interesting, James Bryce uh, was a famous uh, British sociologist, social historian of the last part of the 19th century, and you take Tocqueville and Bryce and, and others a little bit after that, and one of the things they would talk about as being really weird about Americans was that Americans in a very wide variety of socioeconomic situations all bought into really basic things about the less government, the better. Uh, people should be free to uh, live their lives as they see fit. They should be able to keep the money they make. Uh, the idea of enlightened self-interest leads us to do things that help our neighbors, even though we're doing things to help ourselves. These were not things that were talked about by a college-educated elite. These were things that the American educational system at that time started teaching from the get-go, and kids who were the sons of factory workers could give you a fairly coherent account of what it is that made America different and what it was that made 
the, the uh, institutions of freedom and democracy important. There, I would say that it's really hard to make the case. By the way, I acknowledge there were other things in the 20th century going on besides the Oxford and Cambridge curricula, which had an effect on, on, on world politics. But if there is no teaching of the meaning of Western civilization at all, and there really hasn't been much, certainly in colleges, certainly not in today's K-12, you have ignorance. You have ignorance of a very peculiar, unnatural way of constructing countries, namely with democracy and freedom. So I don't, I think that you need every single solitary nourishment of an understanding of those values or the natural course of things is that they go away. As we near the end of this panel, let me ask uh, uh, a self-reflective question. And this picks up on something that I think Jacob said earlier. Um, do libertarians bear some responsibility for the recent intellectual trends we've seen? Did libertarianism in its radical or populist form contribute to undermining trust in the institutions of the liberal democratic order? And is that a bigger problem than libertarians understood? Emily? <laughs> That's a hard question to answer. I I don't well, let me let me ask Charles in, and I'll come back to you. <laughs> I was looking forward to having time to think about it while Emily talked. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I really do. I, th I really think so. And uh, okay, uh, I will first point the finger at myself, because then I'm going to point fingers at other people too. And I'm, I won't take too much time with this. I was way too swept up with enthusiasm for globalization. Because when people would say, oh, we're shipping these jobs overseas to Vietnam and Thailand and sweatshots and so forth, I would think of my years in Thailand. And I'm saying to myself, my friends in Thailand and villages have never had opportunities like this before. These aren't sweatshops by their standards. They're well-paying jobs. Uh, they are in good conditions, and they give them more opportunity for advancement within the corporation. Much easier to get advancement uh, in Ni a Nike branch in Thailand than it is in a locally owned uh, Thai corporation. So all of these things made me very indifferent to uh, the complaints about shipping jobs overseas and that. And this last uh, year raised my consciousness that even though I will buy the macroeconomic argument saying that even low-skill immigration has not been taking jobs from America, et cetera, et cetera. The fact is, at the micro level, uh, I have been in favor of policies that have caused individual Americans to, to, to undergo hardships. And I am more willing to give a preferential uh, nod to fellow citizens just because they're Americans in some economic issues than I was before. The other way, which I'll say very briefly, that I think that libertarians have made life difficult for, for themselves and the country is that, that too many libertarians, I think, have valued the institutions of civil society to either value them too little or haven't talked about them enough. Now, I've actually gotten a lot of sympathy for, for my uh, linking of, of libertarianism with civil society, so I don't want to paint with too broad a brush here. 
I think there are some people who have been way too dismissive of religion and local institutions and mediating institutions, and they turn out to be really, really important as part of the glue that holds a free society together. And I, I can add, I completely agree with what you're saying about kind of the respect for those different types of voluntary associations, religions, associations, local level, you know, all of those types of civic associations. I think another issue that I'm thinking about isn't just among libertarians per se, but something that we've seen kind of among um, evolve or among an intellectual elite, um, particularly attitudes, not just on globalization, yeah, I agree with that, um, but also on immigration attitudes. And I think what happens is that when you're kind of disconnected from kind of the lives of many different types of people when we get into bubbles, <laughs> uh, speaking to Charles, um, the bubble quiz, um, we start to misunderstand and lack a little bit of empathy for why people feel the way they do. So if you've read about this most recent election, academics have all sorts of theories to explain why people voted the way they voted. I've heard authoritarianism, racism, nativism, collective narcissism is the most recent one. Um, and if you think about all of these, at least the four that I just mentioned, those are all kind of negative sounding, right? Like racist, authoritarian, narcissist. Um, it's, it's very condescending. Um, what, do those, what does that even mean? Um, so empirical research that I've been working on um, finds that what really made this election distinctive were attitudes on immigration. A lot of folks take that and say, oh, well, it was just anti-immigrant sentiment. That was it. Well, is that really what it was? Maybe immigration attitudes are more complex and nuanced than we were really realizing. There are so many benefits that accrue through immigration, but there are also costs. I believe the benefits of immigration outweigh the costs, but sometimes we're afraid to talk about those costs because we don't want to emphasize them too much because we really want to emphasize the benefits. But by not talking about those costs, I think we lacked a little bit of empathy about where people were coming from. So when we talk about immigration attitudes, what does that even mean to people? Well, some of the empirical research I've done kind of identifies there's several different things that that can mean. One is security concerns, which has nothing to do with racism at all. It really is, um, it's not necessarily accurate, but a concern that immigrants represent a disproportionate share of crime, which is empirically we find that's not true, but if that's how you feel, then that's rational to be concerned. So let's talk about that. For some, there's a concern about assimilation and a, a, a desire to belong and have a community where people identify and understand one another. But when you have a lot of immigration very, very quickly, that can be hard. People start to feel isolated and they don't feel included in their communities. And then there are other reasons too, and some that are nefarious. But there are many different reasons. And I think that perhaps that lack of empathy and understanding can make it more difficult to communicate effectively. If we can start seeing that there's different motivations for why people think the way they do, we can start talking about those um, more directly and kind of avoid the, the labels, the condescending labels that can just make us feel good about ourselves but prevent us from really understanding where other people are coming from. I think the ideas of liberty are incredibly compelling. I think that we can be, we have the most persuasive arguments, but the best way to do that is to understand our audience first, to understand who we're talking to, where they're coming from. Um, and that's the best way that we can craft those persuasive arguments. I think that 
I'm optimistic for the future that we can continue to do that. But I think in areas where we've been a little bit disappointed in this most in the in the past few years, those are areas where we could be um, where we could improve. Uh, let's see if we can end on an optimistic note, although it may be that I'm going to introduce a note of optimism and you're all going to slap it down. Uh, <laughs> our friends at Reason Magazine say that we're much too pessimistic, that we are now in a world where it's more possible than ever to live your life on your own terms, an early rough draft version of Robert Nozick's glimmering utopia of utopias. Are we wringing our hands too much? Is this a pretty good world getting better? Well, we have David not here. <laughs> uh, culture has had a lot of improvement. Technology and economics have had a lot of improvement. Politics and political structures, uh, they don't change as much over time. And the fragility of constitutional orders and constitutional institutions that can be true at the same time that we say, there's a cornucopia of wonderful stuff that I can download to my iPhone, which is the miracle computer that I carry around in my pocket. I don't think that we have to, as it were, choose between being optimistic about the cultural cornucopia and the technological progress and being genuinely worried about the stability and the robustness of the political institutions that ground that, the free society that produces all of those things. Well, if the constitutional order proves as fragile as you worry, what does that do to the culture and the economy? Oh, it, it does massive damage. I, I, I think that what, what our friends at Reason are looking at are things that become possible in a framework that they're not paying enough attention to. And that as social scientists, as analysts of politics uh, and law and institutions, we need to take those preconditions seriously, as well as recognizing the benefits of what has arisen within them. Okay, I can be optimistic here. Unfortunately, it has to be the long term, and I'm talking maybe a couple hundred years. Uh, but, <laughs> but, but listen, uh, in, the, in the life expectancy technology means we might see that. <laughs> Carl Hess, our dear, dear friend Carl Hess, for many of us in this room, used to say that politics is vastly overrated in its importance, and that tools are what define ultimately what happens. And I actually subscribe to what you were just saying about, actually, they're both, <laughs> politics are so important, but the degree to which the new technology empowers individuals already is phenomenal. The degree to which it undermines intrinsically centralized institutions is already incredible. And all of this is nothing compared to what we're going to see over the course of the next uh, century or two. Now, mind you, that what we're going to see over the course of the next century or two, we've got the singularity, we've got all sorts of things out there that I won't even try to talk about. But it just seems impossible for me to imagine a world 200 years from now with all of these new things that have mostly empowered individuals and, gr and small groups to do things, and a world in which is also much wealthier, as I think it will be 200 years from now, and the people will still say, gee, what we really need are massive bureaucracies enforcing tens of thousands of rules. I just can't see that that in the long term is the direction uh, human history will take. So in that regard, uh, my friends at Reason, I think, are making a really good case. All right. Thank you, Charles, Jacob, Emily. Thanks to all of you for listening.